Ready? Absolutely. Here we go. You're listening to Learning Transforms from the Faculty of Education at the University of Victoria. I'm Ted Rekin. And I'm Courtney Baldwin. And we're coming to you from the unceded territories of the Lekwungen-speaking people and the Wasanish people. Welcome, Welcome to, to the show. show. Welcome to Learning Transforms. I'm Ted Rekin. And today we have with us Dr. Anita Prest, an assistant professor in the Department of Curriculum and Instruction in the Faculty of Education. Uh, Anita, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to have a conversation. Anita, you are a music educator. Yeah. And you're working in a faculty of education, but I know beyond the faculty, outside the ring road, your your interests are in rural education, music in rural communities, Indigenous education, and music as part of that process as well. Can you walk us through some of that, what it is that you do and uh, where your your research interests lie? Sure. I think um, I have to talk about where it's grounded. I was a rural music educator in the community of Karameas, which has a population of about 1,200 people. It's located near Penticton. For 17 years. And I think that experience has really informed what I do today. So uh, as a rural music educator, I often felt isolated from other music educators because I was the only one within a 50 kilometer radius. And so I had to really reach out to provincial organizations and then national organizations to have that constant professional development. And as someone who was born and raised in a large city and then lived in Victoria as well for a period of my life, moving to a small town was a, a big culture shock. And uh, I had al always thought of rural places as places of deficit. Who would want to live there? Or it's, you know, it's very beautiful and it's fun to go on holidays to these places. And I know that's where all our natural resources come from, but why live there? And I soon learned <laughs> that um, my ideas were pretty urban-centric and that there was a, a, a lot going on in the rural places that I had never imagined, uh, including my the chance for me to get to know Indigenous families and my students, the community, um, so about 20% of the students in my school were either from the lower or upper Similkameen First Nations. And I started teaching there in 1993, before a lot of changes in our society um, started to happen in terms of uh, Canadians' relations with its Indigenous peoples. And uh, I remember the first month I was there, my family and I were invited to uh, a house on in Chapaca, which is part of the uh, Lower Similkameen uh, reserve system, which is in pockets. And we went to this house, and there was lots of food, and we each got a yard or a meter of fabric. And I remember thinking, oh, that's really interesting. But I had no idea why. I didn't understand the context. And it was at that moment I realized I have so much to learn. So uh, the research I do today stems from all of those experiences and realizations and relationship building I did over the course of my time in Kiramis. That's interesting. Um, 
that parallels my experience in a way, having grown up in a city, uh, Winnipeg, uh, then a smaller city of Regina, and then, and then moving to uh, Victoria through Vancouver, and then having my first teaching assignment in Gold River yeah. on the island here. Right. And to go from a city of 300,000 to a village of 3,000, yeah. all of that busyness that takes up the daily life of Vancouver or, Vancouver or Victoria is no longer there. So people have to do other things or they have time available to do mm -hmm. other things. And it often, in Gold River, it found its way into uh, the outdoors. People mm -hmm. were, became, you became an avid fisher, fisherman or you were a hunter or you were a hiker or a skier. Um, mm -hmm. But in your community, it sounds like it, it found its way into uh, music and, and the arts. It was an interesting experience because community members and I decided to start a music education festival that actually lasted for 10 years and it was all volunteers. There were about, in the small community, there were about 250 volunteers that made this happen. And that also made me start to think about the possibilities that can occur when you have relationships with people. So you may not have things uh, whether it's stoplights or traffic lights or garbage cans or the things that we take, the infrastructure we take for granted in a city, but you have people and you have relationships and so much can be learned from that. And so I, I'm sure you experience the same thing in Gold River. And the, the fact that each individual can contribute so much to their community and the uniqueness of each individual is really, really important. Um, and it's so funny that you're talking about Gold River because... The, uh, when I came to UVic in 2015, I applied for a grant um, and I got um, a short grant to look at how music teachers and Indigenous culture bearers, knowledge keepers, cultural workers in the schools developed relationships so that uh, uh, the musics that they were given permission to use, the teachers could bring into their classroom and um, uh, introduce Indigenous cultural practices in their classroom settings. And one of the places where we did a call out to music teachers and culture bearers to, uh, because we wanted to interview them and find out what, how did this all happen? How did they develop relationships? How did they build trust with each other? What were the effects on the students? Um, and one of the places we got uh, feedback from, oh, please come up and see our program and what we do was Gold River. We had, we went up to Niska territory. We went to Gitsan territory. Nichalov's territory, it was so interesting because there were three communities who responded to us. Um, Halkaminam territory and eventually here um, in Songis and Esquimalt uh, territory as well. So uh, lots of people doing things that make sense in their places that worked for everybody involved. And so we hope to take those examples to show music teachers who were fearful of doing the work what steps that they could take uh, to make it happen in their realities. And that was the goal of that study. So it was really, really interesting. Uh, I want to pick up on a word that you've used a couple of times now, and that was permissions. Right. Um, it, <clears throat> when you're working with material from other cultures mm -hmm. and cultures are intersecting, there's always this fear that one, uh, one culture is going to appropriate something from another culture. Mm -hmm. But permission somehow seems to uh, open that door a little wider or even to mitigate that mm -hmm. risk. How do you, how, how do you work with those, that idea of permissions in the work that you do? 
Um, okay, so on several levels. First, I need to say that for that study, my co-investigator was Dr. Scott Goebel from the Department of Curriculum and Pedagogy at UBC. So we did all this work in partnership. Um, on the f researcher level, even though our study was taking place uh, in school district and in a school district environment, we thought it was really important. And for this, we, we got uh, our collaborator was Dr. Onawa McIver uh, from the Department of Indi Indigenous Education. And she suggested to us that we get permissions from all the First Nations on whose territory we were doing the work. And uh, we weren't going on reserve, so to speak, uh, but it was their territory. And we were talking about culturally sensitive uh, material. And so we did that. And it took several months in some cases. And in other cases, it took literally a week. Um, so we got permissions from 13 First Nations to do our work. So that's one level of that. And, and it was so interesting because some of the bodies that we went to to get this permission, one in particular suggested to us, oh, have you read this master's thesis? That's really relevant to what you want to do. Perhaps you should also be not only talking to uh, the male culture bearers on your list, but also female culture bearers, because in our community, they do different kinds of cultural practice. And so they were really informative, and it was quite wonderful. So when you say the, the bodies that you went to, the, mm -hmm. these were organizations within the community? Uh, what, what bodies would they be? So it was really different, So depending on where we went to. So, uh, for example, in Gitsan Territory, we went to uh, the Hereditary Chief's office. In Cowichan Tribes, for example, we spoke to their education committee, and then we spoke to chief and council. In Niska Territory, it was uh, the community college that is in Gitwin Silk that deals with all research requests rather than the elected chiefs. So it, there was a different That's solution a in each place, and we had to discover what that was through trial and error. Mm -hmm. And it took up to five months in some locations. And when you get the permission, mm -hmm. does it take the form of a signed piece of paper, or does it take the form of a handshake, and a, you're now good to go, and we, we give you, grant you a license? Or how does it, what does that permission look like? For some people, again, yeah, for some people it was a simple email. For some it was a formal letter. For some it was a verbal agreement. Mm -hmm. Yes, now you can go do the work. Right. Um, and as part of, again, as part of the protocol that we wanted to follow, and we're right engaged in this right now, it's organizing to return to the communities and say, this is what we learned everywhere, and uh, hoping to not only share the information, but also to have continued conversations. So that's one level of permissions. In the classroom, the permissions that the music teachers obtained and also the cultural workers or culture bearers that they uh, worked with. So in some, in some communities, there was a designated cultural worker in each of the schools, and that was a point person to go to. In other schools, they weren't as lucky, and so people had to reach out into the community and participate in cultural events and then get to know people, and then eventually have a conversation about what could happen in the in this classroom. And so, for example, one person who is a cultural worker, I'll use the word owned, but 
my understanding of ownership has changed considerably. Be- and these English words are dangerous because uh, people who uh, maybe are in, engulfed in European culture think of ownership as property. And what I've come to learn is ownership can also mean belonging. So if you own a song, that song may concern your identity. It might be part of your lineage. It might speak to the history of your people. It's a way of showing where you fit into the larger scheme, including the landscape in which you live. Ownership can also be thought of, from my understanding and my learning so far, ownership can relate to stewardship. So for this many, for my lifetime or this period of my life, I am taking care of the song that I was given at a ceremony to take care of. And eventually I will pass on the song to someone else. And so then with that comes a big responsibility, as was explained to me. That's very interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of it that way, but it's almost like the song owns the person. Yeah. Or the person belongs to that song. song, and it's a more reciprocal yeah. rather than you have the intellectual property rights as we would frame it in the West. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hmm. So that leads me to when you mentioned intellectual property rights. Now that we've completed that study, uh, we've on to another one. Um, and all of these have been funded by Shirk, and so we really want to appreciate uh, that funding because without it, it would be impossible to do the work. And one of the reasons we're doing this work is because the BC school curriculum uh, has mandated that we include Indigenous content, pedagogy, and worldview from K to 12 in all subject areas, including music. So we have a responsibility as music educators and as people who are teaching future music educators to do this work. But we couldn't unless we had funding. So some of the culture bearers we spoke to said relationships are really important, but it's also important to have some curricular resources, which the ministry has not supplied as part of the new curriculum development. And so we have to find a way to create these curricular resources, but how do we do this without appropriation? So here's another example of permissions and how they're Mm -hmm. important. So we we decided to partner. Um, I had a conversation with Ron Rice, who is a a person in Victoria who's very well known for his interest. He's a Halkaminam person, and he's very interested in culture and has been known to work with various groups. And at the time we first had a conversation, um, he hadn't yet become executive director of the Victoria Native Friendship Center. But at this point, he, that's what his job is. It's a very busy job. And he agreed to be in partnership with us as we did this work. And our, my partnership uh, expanded to include Dr. Adam Kahn from the School of Music, who's also a music educator here in our, at UVic. And uh, as well, uh, the cultural coordinator at the Victoria Friendship Center. Her name is Lisa Mercure. She's also, so there's five of us who are in partnership with the study. And the format we decided to take was uh, sharing circles. We had one last year and we're having three more in this school year. And we just had one yesterday and there were 38 people in in, uh, the first people's house in the ceremonial hall. Talking about questions like, intellectual property rights. And how do we translate that thinking about indigenous legal orders? 
how can we have parallel systems about thinking about um, property rights, copyright, and what would that look like if we were going to think about it from the perspectives of Indigenous nations? And we're only at the beginning of that conversation. Another question we're wondering about is, should language revitalization be part of this project? And how would it be if it was? And how would we make sure that students and teachers would be able to pronounce the words properly? And not only that, but understand the meanings of the words that maybe don't necessarily translate perfectly to English. What concepts are in some of the words that our students would need to learn, as well as the singing part and the drumming part and the dancing part, whatever else was in that piece of music. And I'm saying piece of music, and, and again, that's problematic mm -hmm. because it's not a piece of music like I would normally think of if I play Beethoven on the piano. So it requires music teachers to completely change their perspective on what it is that they're doing. Yeah, it's interesting times because yeah. the, you know, we've we've both watched it's kind of the the evolution, I suppose, is the word. Maybe maybe that's not the right word of 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 attitudes and positions around knowledge and information. You know, and as someone who spent his life in the academy, my uh, sort of starting point is that information uh, is is shareable. It's public. We put it into libraries so that people can access it. Mm -hmm. And uh, with the birth of the internet and the this uh, organization that used to call themselves the Electronic Front, uh, Frontier Foundation, you know John Perry Barlow and 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 others who whose slogan was "Information wants to be free." Mm -hmm. uh, and then you contrast that with a, a culture that says, "No, this information is ours. It's private." It's sacred. It's not to be distributed. Mm -hmm. It's not to be talked about. And how do you reconcile those two almost polar opposites? And then, mm -hmm. and then in the middle of all that, you have companies like uh, Reed Elsevier, which take material in the public domain, supposedly, and if you publish with them, then they own it. And you can only access it if you buy the journal or subscribe mm -hmm. Or your library subscribed. So, so there's there's this whole range of of com complete sort of openness and transparency to something that's owned by a particular group of people to something else that's owned by a corporation. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side of it, there's this this kind of <clears throat> what I would say the um, the downside, the negative side of the internet, which is that we're now w we we live at the bottom of a sea of information. <laughs> That's that's yeah. nonstop, and yeah. most of what's on the bottom of that sea is, is junk. It's mm -hmm. garbage. I mean, just open a Facebook account or open a Twitter account or read the comments in a newsfeed, and it's all the stuff that's just really not very good for us. So, that's kind of a winding, you know, path through information and right. and and ownership and permissions. But it's uh, it's very complex. It's so interesting because. When you start to think about not to be careful about the knowledge that you pass on and to make sure that the person is ready for it and in the right circumstance, I realize that there is knowledge that will never emerge from the Indigenous communities, uh, that of which I'm not a part. 
And I think it's good for people who aren't used to thinking that way to then start understanding the power of knowledge and respecting that. And the other thing I think about when I think about the overabundance of knowledge that is present, some of which is not accurate and it's, a lot of it is opinion, it has started me thinking about how important it is uh, to find knowledge in relationship. I always used to think of, I'm separate from you, you're separate from me, and we're these individual entities going about our lives. But now I think so much more about the interconnections among people. It's so much easier to be a polite with a stranger. But how about the people who are really important to us in our lives? And how precious those connections are. And how if we learn in between each other, that the knowledge is maybe sits right between you and me, and not in my head and not in your head, but in our learning from each other. And isn't that a neat way to think about knowledge too? And so that's really counter to Elsevier, for example, where ownership is of knowledge is mm -hmm. very protected yeah. or controlled. Yeah. So there's so many different ways to think about knowledge. And I think that's the healthy thing. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I used to struggle with this and I still do to a certain extent, you know, the the um, the idea when I when I was doing work with indigenous teachers, mm -hmm. and and they would talk about, well, that knowledge is not, it's not for anyone outside the community, mm -hmm. and I and I would sort of coming from a university where, you know, you can Google anything or you can go in the library and search for anything. I would say, well, 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 it should be, you know, mm -hmm. like why not? Mm -hmm. And and yet you said that you've come to this understanding that, um, an acceptance that that there is knowledge within those communities that will never mm -hmm. be outside those communities. And there's part of me that s says, well, yes, that's uh, if that's how they want it to be and, and self-determination is a basic right and, mm -hmm. and they can set the terms in reference of, uh, for their own, uh, their own knowledge and understanding and how it gets used or, or not and who accesses it or, or doesn't. But there's still a part of me that says, that's a, that's a real loss. I mm. mean, what if what if one of these communities, and this is an extreme example, but one of what if one of these communities had a had a way of knowing and understanding the world that could bring people absolute peace of mind mm -hmm. and balance and 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 sort of perfection in the midst of all this complexity, but they just keep it because it's theirs and they don't want anyone else to mm. have access to it. Mm -hmm. I I still struggle with that because it's so, it's so. It's so opposite to the sort of the purposes and the intents of the academy, as it right. were, which is about knowledge production and and letting the best ideas out there for people to benefit from, whether it's going to cure cancer or mental illness or, uh, you know, carbon overload, whatever it might be. We're so interesting you're mentioning it. I think every community has different uh, reactions and individuals without those within those communities have different um, uh, approaches. And certainly Richard Atlio's book, To Walk, and his other one about global uh, crisis, um, 
is some so he's an example of someone who says here's some of the knowledge of our community and this is what why I think this new approach could mean so much to climate change and our approach towards climate change and if we think about each other being completely interconnected the the word sawak means number one in Nuchalnath and it means so much more than the number one it means like we are all in this together we are all interconnected from rocks to plants to human beings to bears to and, and so if we start thinking about how we're all equally important and it's not an anthropocentric, am I saying that word right? Mm -hmm. Anthro Anthropocentric. Thank you. Word. <laughs> uh, or world. Then um, that changes everything about how we approach life. We are in a time of potential reconciliation. And I know that that's a really loaded word. And some people... Uh, think that reconciliation is a good idea and others do not. Some people come from a position of resurgence, which is work that I cannot do because I'm not Indigenous. But if we are to take reconciliation seriously, we need to be more informed. And although all educators come out of the Faculty of Education with um, at least one course in understanding uh, the residential school situation, or in other words, understanding our abysmal history with regards to our Indigenous people. I think, first of all, to make to go beyond one course, this topic needs to be in every single subject that students take as undergraduates. I think there has to be a filtering through so that people understand how it's relevant to their everyday lives. I think music, music educators, because it's cultural practice, uh, have an amazing opportunity to help their students understand through the medium of the fine arts, but specifically music, how different people, different people's visions of the world are manifested through their cultural practice. And by seeing... So some of the students, for example, talk to us about... Uh, what they had learned. For many of the Indigenous students, they were just so proud that it was going on in their school and that their culture was being recognized. It motivated them to go to school and it motivated them to engage in cultural practice in their community. For students who are non-Indigenous, many of them talked about the learning about the drum and thinking about the drum as a living, breathing human being, a grandmother, made from the skin of an animal that sacrificed itself to the hunter. Uh, learning about the frame of the drum, which was a living tree. And just last night, I was reminded by Jeremy Dutcher, who is a, an indigenous composer from New Brunswick, that in his language, Wolostok, I hope I'm pronouncing it right. A tree is not called a tree. A tree is called a tree person. So just like the salmon people, the tree people. And by students learning this way of thinking about other things, students told us that they were not only taking care of their other possessions. Oh, now I take care of my saxophone the way I take care of my drum. But now I'm starting to think differently about the things around me, and they are no longer things. 
in the, the practice that the students learn in the classroom, the pedagogy is different. So they sit in a circle and as they go around talking about how they feel on any particular day on a rating of six out of 10 or three out of 10 or 10 out of 10, the students, other students uh, see how a person is on any given day. And then they take that. And one student was telling us how now when he sees a, a, a person he knows maybe not very well, but someone who's not feeling great because of something that's going on in their life, rather than making fun of that person with his friends, that he's much more sensitive to what people are feeling and he has learned to treat people differently. And if we can do this by including indigenous pedagogies and content and worldview in our classrooms, then I think what we're doing is taking the best out of two worlds and creating individuals who are going to be leaders, who are going to be kind. And as a teacher, I can think of no other thing I would rather do than to help a new generation of people becoming better human beings through the medium of music, whatever music means in whatever culture. Well, thanks, Anita, for coming in. That was a really nice conversation and uh, good to explore some of those ideas with you. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, great. Learning Transforms is brought to you by the Faculty of Education and the Association of Graduate Education Students. Learning Transforms is produced by Julie Remy. Sound design is by Xavier Arujo. Special thanks to Dr. Anita Prest. I'm Ted Rekin. And I'm Courtney Baldwin. Thanks for listening.